Well, as always, it's wonderful to see everybody here on this beautiful Lord's Day that God's given to us, and uh, this is uh, an exciting day for our church. We're beginning a new book study, the book of Nehemiah. If you're a visitor with us today, we're especially glad you're here as we begin a new study. So if you'll open your Bibles up, please, uh, with me to uh, the book of Nehemiah. As you're uh, finding your place here, I'll tell you a story I ran across the other day I really liked. There was an old man who goes to the doctor, and he says, hey, doc, he says, my wife's hearing's getting terrible. He says, is there anything you can do to help me out? And the doctor says, well, how bad is it? He says, well, it's really bad. He says, we just hardly talk anymore. But he said, I just love her so much, and I really miss talking with her. So the doc says, doctor says, well, try the distance test. He says, when you get home, call her name, and if she doesn't respond, go closer and closer, and that way we can find out how bad it really is. So he says, okay, he says, I'll give that a try. So the old man goes home, and he opens the front door, and he shouts out really loud, Edna, what's for dinner? There's nothing. There's no response. Then he walks through the hall, and he shouts out again, Edna, what's for dinner? Again, there's nothing. He walks to the door of the kitchen and sees his dear wife there uh, over the oven cooking dinner. And he says, Edna, what's for dinner? And again, there's nothing. So the frustrated old man walks up right behind his wife and shouts in her ears, Edna, what's for dinner? She turns around and says, for the fourth time, chicken. (laughs) Now, sometimes we think other people can't hear well, and sometimes it's us, right? As we begin this new study together, I pray that we will have ears to hear. Uh, what the Spirit has to say to us through the book of uh, Nehemiah. Now, let me give a disclaimer up front. Um, I didn't select this study because we're about ready to start and launch into another building program. Uh, Nehemiah is often a mainstay of preachers during building programs, right? You know, the great verse in Nehemiah, let us rise and build, you know. So I have no hidden agenda in choosing this study. I didn't even think about our building program when I landed on this study. So I just want to give that disclaimer up front. I, I believe this is the book that God has for us, for our lives, and for this church right now. Now, what I want to do this morning is introduce this book and uh, look at the first four verses. So let me read uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of, of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Well, so reads God's inspired and errant word. Let's, uh, let's bow for prayer as we, we, as we launch into this study of Nehemiah. Let's commit ourselves in this study to him. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your inspired holy word. We thank you for the book of Nehemiah, a book written so long ago, but a book that's so up-to-date and so relevant to our lives today. And Father, we just call upon you now as we begin this study to help us, that you'll help us in this study. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to energize our wills to apply your word. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us and to transform us. So, Father, we come now. I come as uh, the teacher and and all of those who are gathered here today. We want to, all of us, commit ourselves to you and humbly ask for your grace and your help. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. After uh, 20 years at a church, a pastor resigned unexpectedly from the church, and a few months later, he ran into one of his parishioners 
And uh, the parishioner asked him what he was doing now. And he said, well, he says, actually, I work at a funeral home now. I'm a mortician. And the guy asked him, well, he says, how do you like your new job? And he says, I'll tell you what, I love my new job. And he says, I'll tell you why I love it. He says, when I was in ministry, when I straightened people out, after some time, they would go back to their old habits and their old hang-ups. But now at the funeral home, when I straighten people out, they stay straight. <laughs> now, I think we can all probably empathize with that pastor, right? We all wish that things in our own lives and maybe in our family and in the church or in the, even in our country, the things didn't need to be constantly rebuilt and restored and revitalized all the time. Life doesn't always retain its shape. Um, the honeymoon doesn't last forever in life. Uh, marriages can break down and can even fail. Uh, families need rebuilding. Christian maturity takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. Uh, there are a lot of setbacks and struggles that, that are part of life. And people just don't stay straightened out, ourselves included. But such is life. And that's why we constantly need to rebuild and to revitalize our lives. And I believe that's the overarching theme here that we have in the book of Nehemiah. The key thought in this book, the key word, if you want to boil it down to one word, is rebuilding. And that's why I've titled this series, Rebuilding Your Future. Nehemiah is a builder's book. He's a man who's coming to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and then rebuild the people spiritually. Kind of the book's kind of divided into two halves. The first half, he comes back and the walls of the city are rebuilt. The last half of the book, the, the lives of the people are rebuilt. Their, their lives are in disarray. So over these next few months, the book of Nehemiah is going to challenge us to rebuild what is broken and failing in our lives. But I think also to be on the lookout for how we can encourage people who have broken down walls in their lives as well. I've got about uh, probably 30 books at least, 30 commentaries on Nehemiah. I'll, I'll be looking at all those every week and kind of mining out a lot of, of rich truths for us. But I ran across two men this week who, in my mind, kind of frame the practical application of this book for us. I want to read quotes from each of them. The first one is from O.S. Hawkins. He's a well-known Baptist preacher. He says this, he says, rebuilding. Here is a universal subject that touches all of us as we journey through different periods of life. Many of us have relationships that need to be rebuilt. Some are in the process of rebuilding a business. Others are rebuilding integrity in their family lives. Some others are in the process of rebuilding after divorce. Some are rebuilding after the death of a loved one. Some are rebuilding their own self-confidence. Others are rebuilding their hopes for the future. Some persons are in the process of rebuilding their lives after retirement. But then he says this, in one way or the other, most of us will spend part of the next year rebuilding. The good news is it's never too late for a new beginning. I like that. That's a good way to summarize. We're, we're all at different times in our lives somewhere in the process of rebuilding. Uh, Ray Stedman, in his book on Nehemiah, kind of gets down in, into more of the, the, the nitty-gritty of life, and he says this, Some of us feel devastated by our sins. We may feel helpless against a drug addiction, an alcohol addiction, a gambling addiction, a pornography addiction, or a sexual addiction. We may feel devastated by our bitter spirit and addiction to anger, bitterness, or a judgmental attitude. Like Jerusalem, our walls have been broken down by our own sin and folly. Then he says this, some of us feel devastated by sins committed against us. Perhaps you were sexually abused as a child and the shame of that abuse has blackmailed you into silence. 
You don't know how to escape the pain of the past, and you're afraid to speak about it. Perhaps you've been scarred by some attack against your reputation or your career. Maybe you're unable to move past the bitterness and pain of a divorce or a betrayal. The people around you may think you're successful, happy, doing just fine, but inwardly you know you're not. The walls of your life are in ruins. The gates of your life are broken. You may appear whole on the outside, but you're broken on the inside. And then I love Ray Stedman says, that's why God gave the scriptures to us. We have technologies and gadgets and luxuries that previous generations never imagined, but deep down at the core of our being, we're no different from the people who lived in Nehemiah's day. The men and women of the past have gone through the same moral dilemmas and spiritual crises we face. And in the book of Nehemiah, God shows us how to overcome these trials and reconstruct our broken lives. If we follow Nehemiah's plan for rebuilding Jerusalem, we'll discover a blueprint for our lives. I love that. Nehemiah is God's plan or blueprint for rebuilding. Now, before we get into this blueprint for rebuilding, I want to take a few minutes and just place the book of Nehemiah in its historical context. We'll be adding more details as we go along through the book, so this isn't the only time I'll give historical setting, but I just want to get this before us in our minds. And you can see a chart there in your outline. I think that'll help you out as you kind of see the, the, the uh, <clears throat> setting for this book. But you'll remember that uh, back in, in 931 B.C. that the uh, nation of Israel split in half. Well, actually not half. Ten of the northern tribes became the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes are Judah. And you'll remember that the northern tribes were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The uh, southern kingdom of Judah lasts a little more than 100, uh, about 100 years more and what happens is the Babylonians come down and carry them away into captivity in three successive waves. There's three waves of deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they're in captivity there, you remember, uh, for 70 years. Now, during this period of time, in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Persian conquers the Babylonians. And Cyrus the Persian, the Persian king, allows the Jewish people to go back to their land. And the Jewish people then go back to their land in three waves. So one of my friends calls this six sovereign trips. It's kind of easy to remember it. They get hauled from Jerusalem to Babylon in three waves. They come back in three waves. And the book of Nehemiah is the third of those waves of return. Uh, the first one happened, you can see there in your outline, in uh, 538 B.C., uh, when Zerubbabel brought a group back and they rebuilt the temple. About 50,000 Jews came back to the land. That's in the first part of the book of Ezra. Then Ezra leads a second group back of about 1,800 people, and they come back and reestablish the moral and spiritual life of the people in the land. The people's lives are in, in spiritual disarray. And then finally, about 12 years after that, Nehemiah leads a third return in 444 B.C. That's the setting for Nehemiah. It's the Persian Empire. It's 444 B.C. He leads the third return. He's the great leader of the restoration and the rebuilding of the walls of the city. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books originally were one composition together. 
Uh, the book of Nehemiah covers about 15 years. Now, when we're reading Nehemiah, we're in the 16th book in the, the Old Testament, chronologically in order. But actually, if you were to put it where it belongs, it would be right at the very end of the Old Testament. Because Malachi and Nehemiah are contemporaries with one another. So the book of Nehemiah is bumping right up against those 400 silent years between Matthew and Malachi, or between Malachi and Matthew. When Nehemiah is writing here, the curtain is going down on the Old Testament. So that's the setting here. He's the leader of this third return back to restore and rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now, the first half of Nehemiah is all about rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. Now, when I thought about the idea of rebuilding a wall, my mind couldn't help but go to the fact that we've heard quite a bit in the last few years about building a wall, right? Now, I'm not one to get into politics in the pulpit. Those of you who are here at this church have been here any time know that. But let me just say it's not always bad to build a wall, right? Nehemiah was a wall builder. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that, at least for now. We'll get on here. But uh, let's begin to, to look at Nehemiah's blueprint here for rebuilding the city and we'll see in that a pattern for rebuilding of the broken down walls in our lives. And I see three things in these first four verses. And these are kind of the initial parts of this blueprint, if you will. And I'm calling this message, First Things First. Because we need to make sure when we're rebuilding that we get started on the right foot. And the three things that I see here in these verses for us is, if we're going to be, re be rebuilding the broken down walls in our lives and be encouraging others to do the same and helping them, we have to be people who are prepared, we have to be people who care, and we have to be people of prayer. Those are the three things I see in this passage. We've got to allow God to prepare us. We have to care about what's happening, and then we have to be people of prayer. And let's begin by getting to know a little bit about Nehemiah and his position. That's our first point here in our outline, but we see in his position that Nehemiah is prepared. Now, this book is Nehemiah's memoirs. This is his inspired journal, if you will, of what God led him to do in rebuilding the city. Now, what do we know about Nehemiah? Well, we know his name. The name Nehemiah means the comfort of Yahweh or comforted by Yahweh. We know that he was born in exile. He was part of the, uh, the people who'd been exiled. He lives in Persia at this time. Um, his father is a man named Hakaliah. Uh, we know that he has a brother um, Hanani, he says, one of my brothers. So evidently, it seems that he had more than one, but he meets his brother, uh, Hanani. And we know that his occupation is he's the cupbearer to the king, to King Artaxerxes. Now, we'll talk more about him in a couple weeks, but this is a man named Artaxerxes Longimanus. So Nehemiah is presently in Susa. He's in the Persian Empire, and he's in the winter palace there of the Persian kings. That's where their winter palace was. So they're about 800 miles, a little over 800 miles from Jerusalem. Now, he says at the very end of chapter 1, Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer of the king in that day tasted all the king's food and drink. Because kings back in that day were very paranoid that someone was going to try to poison them. So... This job had a really good side to it. You got to eat a lot of really good food and drink exquisite wine. But the downside was if somebody tried to poison the king, you're a dead man, right? So it's a high-risk job that he has. But more than that, the, the, the cupbearer controlled access to the king. 
It was kind of like almost a chief of staff who controlled who had access to the king. Also, he guarded the king's sleeping quarters. I mean, that's when the king was the most vulnerable. When he was in there at night sleeping, he was vulnerable to assassination. So he guarded the sleeping quarters of the king. He saw that that was taken care of. So it's a position of great influence. Now, in the reading I've done about this, many people said that, you know, kings in that day uh, liked to look good, and so they wanted impressive people around them. So they would only have people in an office like this who were very handsome and good-looking. They wanted good-looking people uh, around them. So probably Nehemiah was a fairly striking man. Now, for a Hebrew to rise to this level in the Persian Empire is unusual. So he must have been a very effective, efficient man in what he did. He must have been a man of tact and poise and competence, and he must have been very honest and trustworthy for for Artaxerxes to put him in this position. He must have been a man of sterling character. And I think one of the things we see here, there's a lesson for us that God uses prepared people. God uses people who are faithful in the small things and the everyday things of life who are competent and honest and trustworthy and efficient and effective, that they're faithful where God has placed them, wherever it is. Kind of another lesson to piggyback on that idea is, before you can serve God well, you have to serve men well. You have to serve people well. We see that in the Scriptures. You remember Joseph with Potiphar. He served Potiphar well, and he could serve God well. We see it with Daniel serving Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Nehemiah serving uh, with with Artaxerxes. We have to be faithful in the place God has called us before God can come and use us. I was was reading Nehemiah this week, and it kind of related to my life. So I thought, you know, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to this king. And when God called me to ministry, I was uh, uh, working at the Court of Criminal Appeals for a pagan judge there. So kind of a a pagan ruler, if you will. So I could kind of relate to, to Nehemiah and what he was experiencing. But I look back on that time that I worked there, and I see how God was preparing me, and I was learning indispensable lessons that I couldn't learn in any other way. And so God is preparing us wherever we are in the everyday things, the simple things of life. But we have to be effective and efficient in what we do. Several times over the years, in fact, I'll have people come to me sometimes and they'll talk to me about maybe God calling them into full-time ministry. And I'll, I'll talk to them, well, well why, do you, why do you believe that's true? And several times people have told me, well, nothing else I'm doing seems to be working out very well, so I think God's calling me to the ministry. Well, right then a red flag goes up because being called to ministry is not a negative calling, it's a positive calling. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon says it like this, I have met 10, 20, 100 brethren who have pleaded with me that they were sure, quite sure they were called to ministry. They were quite certain of it because they'd failed in everything else. The ministry, he says, needs the best of men, not those who can't do anything else. A man who would succeed as a preacher would probably do right well either as a grocer, a lawyer, or anything else. A really valuable minister would have excelled at anything. There's scarcely anything impossible to a man who can keep a congregation together for years and be the means of edifying them for hundreds of consecutive Sundays. He must be possessed of some abilities and be by no means a fool or a 'er ne'er-do-well. Jesus Christ deserves the best men to preach His cross, not the empty-headed and the shiftless. I love that statement. It's true. 
Failing in what you're doing is not a call or a preparation to further ministry for the Lord. Before you can serve God well, you have to serve others well. And there's another lesson here. You can serve God wherever you are. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to a pagan king, yet he's a servant of Yahweh. In fact, if you look down in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, and verse 11, he uses the word servant. He uses it twice of himself, and he uses it a couple times of Moses being God's servant and others. But he sees himself as a servant of Yahweh. Now think about this for a moment. No one was more strategically placed to influence the king than his cupbearer. I mean, the most influential person probably in the life of a monarch in that day was his cupbearer. Now, we won't turn back there. We'll look at this again in a few weeks. But back in the book of Ezra, in Ezra 4.23, it tells us the people of Israel were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But Artaxerxes, because of influence from some other people, stopped the rebuilding of the walls. So if the walls of Jerusalem are going to get rebuilt, Artaxerxes is going to have to give permission to do it, right? Because he's the, the, the ruler of the world in that day. So the Jewish people need somebody with access to the king. They need someone that the king trusts to influence him to allow them to begin rebuilding again. Think about this. God has Nehemiah in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. God has Nehemiah placed where he wants him to be, and there's no accident that he, it's no accident that he's the cupbearer at this time. And I love this because in your life and in my life, God is always out ahead of us. I mean, here these people are back in Jerusalem thinking if only Artaxerxes would allow us to begin to rebuild the walls again. They have no idea that God has a Jewish man, a Hebrew man, as the cupbearer to the king that God is going to use to influence him. I like the way one person put it. I read this week. He says, we have a go-ahead God, a go-ahead God, a God that's, that's out ahead of us that's planning and orchestrating the affairs of life. We see in this the sovereignty and the providence of God to have the right man at the right place at the right time. I read a quote about two weeks ago I love. It says, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? You know, nothing's ever just occurred to God. I mean, God knows everything. And since God knows everything and controls all things, He's always orchestrating and working out the events of life. He knows where we need to be, and He knows when we need to be there. And let me just pause and say this. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah. We're going to talk a lot about Nehemiah and, uh, and about this man. He, he's a wonderful man to model our lives after. But I don't want there to be any mistake in this study. Nehemiah is not the hero of the book of Nehemiah. God is the hero of this story. And God is always the hero of the story. And God is Nehemiah's God. And he's the one who has Nehemiah in position. And I can assure you, Nehemiah, if he were here today, would say the very same thing. The hero of my memoirs, of my journal, is Yahweh. He's the one who's the hero of the story. God has everything in control. And God has you in position where he wants you to be. You may say, so I'm just at home all week most of the time, or I'm in school or I'm in a factory, or I'm in an office, or I'm driving a truck, or whatever it may be. Live for Christ where God has placed you. That's what Nehemiah did. He was faithful and efficient. So the first thing we see about Nehemiah is his position, and we see that he was a man who was prepared. He was a man who was faithfully serving men, and he was a man who 
saw that God could use him no matter uh, where he was in life. So Nehemiah is a man who's prepared. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is what I call his posture, and that is that Nehemiah cared. Notice in, again in uh, verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So uh, Nehemiah overhears a conversation. Josephus, who's a, a, a historian, uh, later on, a historian, he says that Nehemiah, while he was walking around the palace there in Susa, overheard some men speaking in the Hebrew language. And he overheard what they were talking about, and they were talking about the city of Jerusalem and the walls being destroyed there and the people uh, being in disarray. And lo and behold, uh, Nehemiah goes in, and to find these men, and one of them is his own brother, Hanani. So two brothers bumping into one another, and Nehemiah hearing about what's going on changes the trajectory of his life forever. His entire life turns on that, what we might call a chance encounter. He just happens to be out walking around the walls. Here's some men speaking in Hebrew. One of them happens to be his own brother. He meets them. They tell him about what's happening. That is the turning point in the life of Nehemiah. And you know what's fascinating? Many of us here might say, you know, the turning point in my life was just some small event. It was a conversation that I had with someone. It was a phone call. I remember years ago, uh, I used to go and meet with Dr. Walverd uh, down at Dallas Seminary. He wasn't president anymore, so he had more time. And we'd go have lunch together often, and he would let me just pepper him with questions about Bible prophecy and all kinds of stuff. And it was some of the better times of my life. But I would also ask him just practical questions. And I asked him one time, Dr. Walverd, how did you end up at Dallas Seminary uh, teaching there? And, and kind of how, how did your life take that course? He said, well, actually, uh, and this was been back in the 1930s. He said, back in 1930s, um, I planned when I got out of Dallas Seminary to go and be a missionary uh, down in a faraway place. And we're kind of in, in the, the jungles, if you will. But he said, one day I was walking across campus, and Dr. Chafer was walking by, who was the president of the seminary at the time. And, and of course, they knew each other, but he stopped him. He said, John, he said, what are you planning on doing when you uh, finish seminary? And he, he said, I told him I'm planning on going to being a missionary and going down and serving the Lord. And he said, well, John, he said, you know, I need someone to stay here and get a doctorate. And I need someone to help me teach on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of last things or, or Bible prophecy. He said, you know, I think you'd be really well equipped for that. And he said, I looked at Dr. Chafer and said, Dr. Chafer, if that's what you want me to do, then that's what I'll do. The whole trajectory of his life changed in that moment of time. And, and he told me from that, he said, you know, Mark, he said, sometimes, you know, people are looking for some dramatic call or some divine vision or some angelic messenger to come speak to them. But often it's in that still small voice, one phone call, one seemingly chance meeting that God can redirect our lives. And for Nehemiah, it's one meeting here just by, again, what looks like, humanly speaking, chance when he meets his brother and he finds out what's going on in Jerusalem. I like the way Warren Wiersbe puts it. He says, like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. It was just another day when Moses went out to care for his sheep, but on that day he heard the Lord's voice and became a prophet. 
It was an ordinary day when David was called home from shepherding his flock, but on that day he was anointed king. It was an ordinary day when Peter, Andrew, James, and John were mending their nets after a night of failure, but that was the day Jesus called them to become fishers of men. Then he says this, you never know what God has in store, even in a commonplace conversation with a friend or a relative. So keep your heart open to God's providential leading. God often leads us in ways that we don't expect. Now, when Nehemiah gets this news, it's devastating news. This is grim news. The city of Jerusalem's downtrodden. Uh, the walls are in ruin. The people are a reproach. Morale is low. Uh, the people are dispirited and they're defeated. And so we see the two great problems in verse 3. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned up, and the people are in great distress. And again, that's going to be the, the, the outline or the, the theme of the rest of this book. He's going to rebuild the walls, and he's going to rebuild the people. So again, this sets the course of his life from this point on. Now, the thing I love here, though, about Nehemiah, when he hears about what's happening back in Jerusalem, look, that's 800 miles away. He's in Susa, and he's living the good life. I mean, Nehemiah has it good. He lives in ease and affluence. I mean, he's in plush surroundings, eats exquisite food, and drinks wonderful wine every day. But yet he's brokenhearted and burdened for his people because God is burdened about them. He's willing to get involved. And he displays here an unselfish spirit. He's not a man who's preoccupied with himself. And that is a characteristic and a trait that all of us need to be burdened for a broken down world around us. There's a lot of broken down walls. Look, we have broken down walls in our own lives we need to fix. But if God by his grace helps us in some measure to do that, we can be used to help restore people around us and maybe help restore the culture around us as well. But are we burdened about these things? Are we burdened for the things that God is burdened for? Do we not want to kind of move out of our comfort zone and minister to people who are in need and in our culture? It's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. Nehemiah was a man who was willing to be burdened. So look, if we're going to rebuild in our own lives, if we're going to be used by God to help others rebuild the broken down walls in their lives, we have to be prepared in the everyday things of life, being efficient and just effective and trustworthy in the things God has called us to do. But we also have to care. We can't be preoccupied with self and not be willing to move out and help others. But the final thing I see here in these verses is we need to be people of prayer. And I call this Nehemiah's pursuit, or you could call this his priority, because this is the key thing that's highlighted, obviously, in chapter 1, if you keep reading, is this prayer of Nehemiah. Now, you notice he says in uh, verse 4, I sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. The fasting here probably is not some planned fast. Probably he just lost his appetite. In other words, he's so distressed by what he hears that he loses his desire for food. And that's probably happened to every one of us here at one time or another. Something burdened you so much in your life, you were so distressed that you just lost your appetite and desire for food. And that's, that's where this man is at this point in his life. Now, upon hearing this news, Nehemiah instinctively turns to God. His natural immediate response is to cry out to God in prayer. 
One of the things we're going to see as we go through this book is Nehemiah's memoirs are punctuated with prayer. There are 12 prayers of Nehemiah in this book. And we're going to see that the book opens with prayer and it closes with prayer. In fact, if you go over and look at the very last words of Nehemiah, his final words are these, Remember me, O my God, for good. It's a prayer. He's calling out to the Lord. So it opens with prayer. It ends with prayer. And it's punctuated with 10 more prayers in the middle. Uh, one man I read this week called uh, Nehemiah, he wrote his name out, Nehemiah, K-N-E-E, Nehemiah, because he was a man who was on his knees. Um, one person called him a leader from the knees up. And I like that. He was a man who was leading from his knees. But Nehemiah does here what you and I need to do in our lives. He turned his problems into prayers. He's dependent on God, and he realizes that only God can meet the need that he has. And if we want to be effective in our lives and in this ministry for the Lord, we better be praying. If you're an ABF leader, if you're involved in an adult Bible fellowship, I hope you're praying earnestly for your ministry there. Our youth leaders, we need to be praying for our, our young people. We need to be praying for our children, those of you involved in children's ministry. And the elders of our church, above all, need to be men of prayer. We gather together to pray uh, for our church and for our needs. Heard a story about an old man years ago. Whenever he would see one of his friends out and about in town, he would always greet him with the same greeting. He'd say, friend, do I find you praying? It's pretty convicting, isn't it? And I want to avoid that guy sometimes you see him out, right? Friend, do I find you praying? It's a great reminder, though, to us to ask ourselves, does the Lord find us praying today? Does the Lord find us being people earnestly in prayer for the difficulties and struggles of life? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Prayer is our priority in life. In fact, if you go down in Nehemiah 1 and verse 6, he says, I am praying to thee now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel. This man is earnestly praying to the Lord that God will help him do something about what's happening in Jerusalem. Now, there's something very interesting here in the text I want to point out this morning before we close. Go back up to verse 1. Notice uh, he says, Now it happened in the month Kislev. You say, well, what in the world is that? Well, Kislev in the Jewish calendar is November, December. So the year is 444 B.C. It's around November, let's say, of 444 B.C. Now go to chapter 2, verse 1. This is when his prayer is finally answered. And it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. The month Nisan is March-April. And again, it's the same year, 444 B.C. So when Nehemiah hears the news about Jerusalem being broken down, it's about November and when his prayers finally answered is about March. So it's about a four-month period of time or so. So what this means is that Nehemiah is praying all of this time. Now, one of the things we're going to see when we get later in the book is it takes Nehemiah and the folks that help him 52 days to build the walls, to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. So that takes 52 days, but notice he's praying from the month Kislev, from November all the way till March. So he's praying for over 100 days. 
So he's praying twice as long as he's working. He prayed twice as much as he worked. And it brings to mind the old saying that some have that prayer is the work. You know, sometimes we're in a hurry to get the work for God and do the thing God wants us to do. But oftentimes, God has us set aside in prayer because prayer ultimately is the work. Now, when I read chapter 1 and I read this prayer of Nehemiah, what comes to mind is the question, was this the prayer that Nehemiah prayed the first day when he heard about the, the conditions in Jerusalem? Or is this the final form of the prayer that he prayed the day that it's finally answered about four months later in March. Probably what you have here is a summary or a distillation of what he prayed during that entire 100-year year, uh, period, or 100-day 100, 100 period. And his prayer was probably shaped over time. You know when you go and you pray to the Lord about something, how the prayer often is shaped over time. And you also think about this, what you pray about in life is what you get involved in. If you don't want to get involved in something, don't pray about it. When you begin to pray for a ministry or a need or something like that, you tend to get involved in that. Pray, people who pray for things are the most involved in them. If you pray for the children's ministry at our church, you'll probably find yourself getting involved in it. If you pray for missions, you'll probably find yourself giving to that. If you're praying for our Greater Things Project here at Faith Bible Church, it's hard to pray without becoming involved in that. And if you ever noticed when you pray, you often become the answer to the prayer. Have you ever noticed that? It's true of Nehemiah. He starts out praying about the broken down walls and about the conditions in the city. And before long, he realizes that he is the answer to that prayer. That God has placed him in a unique position to influence this king. Over in the book of Matthew, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, uh, the, 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 wheat, the, the fields are white unto harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out laborers to go out into the harvest. Most people read that and they stop. If you read chapter 10, the first few verses, Jesus then sends the disciples out into the harvest. <laughs> He says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. But if you pray that, you know what ends up happening? You're the one that gets sent because we often become the answer uh, to our own prayers. And that's what we see here uh, with Nehemiah. Now, one final point here, point here I want to mention about prayer. We'll pick up here next time and look at the elements of this beautiful prayer. But one thing I want to just point out is Nehemiah begins here in this prayer with, with the greatness of God. That's where he starts. Look at verse 5. I beseech thee, O Lord God, O Lord God of heaven, the great and the awesome God. Look, Nehemiah faces an overwhelming situation. King Artaxerxes is the one who stopped the rebuilding. And he realizes that only King Artaxerxes is the one who can begin the rebuilding. And so he faces an overwhelming situation. And look, in your life and in my life, the broken walls of our lives can seem overwhelming to us sometimes. The problems in our lives can seem so big. But it's prayer that brings everything into perspective. Prayer is kind of like uh, what cleans the windshield of life so that we can see things clearly. And after we get the greatness of God in view and we pray, we can look at our problem with a new perspective. Because when we pray, God becomes big and everything else becomes small. 
Look down in verse 11. This is the conclusion of his prayer. O Lord, I beseech you, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's going to go in and he's going to try to look for an opportunity to talk to King Artaxerxes. But he starts out in his prayer and he sees God as big. He's the God of heaven. God here, he's the Lord God of heaven. He's great and he's awesome. And by the time he gets to verse 11 in this prayer, what does he call King Artaxerxes, the greatest monarch on earth in that day? He calls him this man. And I don't think it's a term of disrespect, but I just think in his mind now, he knows that Artaxerxes is just a mere man in comparison to God. Look, prayer shrinks things down to their proper size. And that's why all rebuilding must begin with prayer. We can look at the the broken down walls in our own lives and we can be overwhelmed by them. Uh, We can look around at the broken lives of people around us, maybe in our families or our extended families. We can look at the broken down walls in our culture around us and we can be overwhelmed. But it's prayer that shrinks those things down to size when we see uh, the greatness of God. Look, let me ask you this morning that question that that old man I mentioned earlier always asked when he met someone. Friend, do I find you praying? Is that true of you today? Do you have a robust, thriving prayer life? Look, we need to remember that prayer ultimately is the work. It's what brings everything in perspective. It's what brings God into our problems that may be overwhelming us. Look, God is calling you and he's calling me to be rebuilders with him. But to do that, we have to put first things first. We've got to be prepared. We've got to be working and and be honest and trustworthy and faithful wherever God's placed us. We have to care. We have to be burdened by the things that burden God's heart. We have to be people of prayer. We'll pick up next time and look at this great model prayer. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you can't rebuild your life because you don't have the foundation yet. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the only foundation, that no foundation can be laid other than Him. So I want to give you the opportunity before you leave here this morning to get the foundation of your life settled by taking Jesus to be your Savior. Last week we celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and died for you and he rose again. And that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you don't have that sure foundation of Jesus Christ in place in your life, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to trust in him and receive him to be your savior from sin. And Father, we come now for those of us who know you and we help pray that you'll help us to face the areas in our lives that need rebuilding. Father, we all have broken down walls in our lives. Help us to be honest with you and with ourselves about those. To seek your help and restoration. Father, help us to be faithful wherever we are. Not to see it as insignificant. If we're in the home or the school or an office or a factory or a shop, driving a truck, whatever it is, Help us to be faithful and be prepared where we are. 
Father, give us an unselfish heart that's willing to sacrifice for you and for your work and your glory, to be burdened by what burdens you, and not to just be preoccupied with ourselves. And Father, move us to pray, to be dependent upon you, and to bring our problems into perspective, to shrink the issues we face in life down to size in light of your greatness. Oh, Father, thank you. We pray that you'd answer these requests now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction.